You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Harris. They've got a fucked up story about overcoming trauma and helping others heal. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Hey, producer Dan. How are you doing this morning? Man, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, had some food poisoning yesterday and getting over it, but uh, I am standing up and things are moving in all the right direction through my body today. So <laughs> big win. All right. I'm glad to hear it. I was a little bit worried about you. Um, I mean, not, not, not very kind. I- you know, I was just going to say mostly because I didn't want to miss an interview. Um, Nor do I. I. I figured you'd get what. What did you eat, Dan? What, how, how did this happen? Uh, I don't have all the answers. Um, there were a couple suspect things. Okay, um, but <laughs> no, that, that, no, no, that, nothing definitive. That baggie you pulled out of the fridge that wasn't uh, didn't have a date <laughs> or name on it is that probably what it was? Uh, well. My wife loves to throw things out that are in the fridge and like one day expired. And this is just one more reason for her to think that that's appropriate. So, okay. Well, you, this, this sounds very much like a Simpsons episode where Homer fell in love with his large sandwich and I ate do it remember for way too long. Episode. Yeah. I, I think that that, that is kind of what I'm hearing here. Um, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh, I am here and ready. Got a new haircut just for the show and by so a new I. haircut. In fact, I went to your guy. Oh, he told me that he was like, thanks for recommending or referring your friend. I was like, who the hell was that? that um, was and he cut. said that he said your podcast guy, and I was like, I never told you about my podcast, so now he knows about my podcast. Um, yeah. So yeah, ho- hopefully he'll be listening. But anyway, we're we're rambling a little bit. Um, was there anything before when we were talking, Dan? Really quickly, you said I'm going to save that for the show. Was there something? Oh, yeah. Do you remember what that was? We have a visitor this week at my house. Oh, okay. Uh, it is Harry the guinea pig from my kids' school library. Harry goes oh. home with somebody else every week, and our oh, dog okay. Lando can't stop staring at the guinea pig (laughs) he will sit in the kitchen and just stare sometimes he'll lift his little paw up and fold it back like he's some kind of hunting dog but he will just stare intently at the guinea pig and he's been doing it for about 30 hours okay so what's the over under on the number of times that they've had to buy a replacement identical guinea pig i can tell you that harry was with us last year for a weekend Although very much the same colors, this Harry has a very different attitude than the last Harry. I'm, I'm pretty sure that happens a fair amount. I, I, okay, well, that sounds very traumatic. And speaking of, Harris is here today. Harris, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Ah, you know, I'm I'm doing doing pretty well. And Harris, where are you located? I think you're the furthest away that we've had a guest call us from. <laughs> I'm in Hertfordshire in England. 
Hertfordshire in England. Okay, uh, I'm. I, I, that explains I almost... why you sound so smart. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, it, it may just be the accent, but you, I'm... you know, decide for yourselves. <laughs> well, it's well, definitely a good start. We'll certainly be judging the words that come out now, just to make sure that our belief is true. Um, Harris, so why are you here with us today? What, what, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, trauma and how to get over it, basically. Okay. I, we're, we're pretty well versed on the, the experiencing trauma side over here. We like to think that we uh, do get over it, uh, that we do grow and process and know how to manage it. But of course, it's different for everybody. And while I might be over here saying that I'm a well-adjusted human being, Dan's opinion of, see, I, I didn't even have to, he's shaking his head no. And we're just going to pretend that I'm right and Dan's wrong today. But Harris, uh, tell us a little bit about you then. Um, when we're talking about trauma, I'm, I'm going to assume uh, here, and I know we've talked a little bit before, that you uh, are, like the rest of us, experiencing some of that trauma. So can you tell us a little bit about the your life and some of the traumas that you've been through? Yeah, sure. So I think it mostly falls into two categories. Firstly, the simple PTSD, which is when you're like, I'm fucked up because a very specific thing happened. You can easily uh -huh. pinpoint it. You know when you get triggered, you're like, it's because of that specific thing. Really easy to to identify that. Um, and for me, it was sexual trauma. So the first time I was 10, second time I was in my teens with an abusive partner who, in my my best guess, is was that he was also sort of malignant sociopath narcissist or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the, th the third time I was in my 20s on a first date and it went wrong. So there was that that side of the kind of simple PTSD. It was really easy for me to be like, I'm fucked up because that specific thing happened. Okay. Um, so I had that treated in like two hours. We can come back to the specifics of that. But just to continue the kind of overview, I also, it turns out, uh, had complex PTSD from my upbringing, my family of origin. Uh, I come from a very funny family. Um, we all hang out quite a lot. We, we spend a fair amount of time together. And at the same time, there's a huge amount of trauma and poor boundary function, um, all kinds, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I think everyone's like everyone in my family's matured now, but you know how the family looked and operated when I was a kid and a teenager, and even in my twenties was uh, pretty fucked up. And I think me going to get my trauma sorted out and being on this sort of self development sort of journey for the last ten years since I it all that all got triggered off by a bit of cancer that I had um Boy. it yeah yeah that was a, a whole thing but in me doing this and moving forward I'm I'm gradually uh dragging my family with me whether they want to or not <laughs> I I feel like and I'm sorry I'm gonna make light a little bit which is what we do but I feel like I need a chalkboard here and I'm gonna ch put a notch down for sexual trauma family trauma uh, cancer, medical trauma. Uh, is there anything else that, that we're that we're, we any other path we could go down this time? Yeah, I mean, I I guess there's some other things. Um, you know, I've I've been in abusive relationships. Um, sure. I suffered a, a physical paralysis when I was in my later teens. That was I was in physiotherapy for about a year. Um, 
I got fired a lot. I'm neurodivergent, so uh, and also entrepreneurial, and that's part of my personality. So, uh, okay. as as an employee, I'm very annoying. And uh... <laughs> well, Dan, Dan and I are both too. But Dan and I are both ADHD. Dan used to work for me, so uh, and I was yeah, annoying I, the whole I, time. <laughs> there were times when you were on lunch; it was fine. Yeah. And then I guess, you know, there's the whole queer thing. I, I you know, I, I, I guess when I was younger, there, there are always signs that I was non-binary and, you know, yeah. didn't care about the gender of the people I, I had crushes on and stuff. But, uh, you know, and I, I feel pretty chilled out about all of that. It is what it is. It's not that exciting. I, I don't feel yeah. like it's the most uh, uh, significant thing about me as a human being, but it does bring with it a lot of uh, trouble, unfortunately. So. Well, it sounds like um, you have some expertise in trauma. And now that <laughs> we're talking... At least experience. Yeah, I, which is, I mean, that's what we're here for, right? To, to, to get the story uh, of, of where you started and how you are, uh, you know, the decent human being that you are today. Um, Thanks. Absolutely. Scott, you made a brow. Yeah, I, I, well... Dan and I are looking at each other through the camera like, is he talking or am I talking? So it looked like you were going to keep going. I opened my mouth. But anyway, uh, nobody needs to hear all of that. But Harris, you, a you marker said a, in right there. Couple, <laughs> you, you said a couple of things that I, I find very interesting. And I kind of want to right now delve into the family side because – you started by saying, you know, our family jokes a lot. We we do things. I, I don't know the exact words you used, but it clearly, or at least it sounded to me like you're saying, yeah, there was a lot of joking, but maybe things weren't being done or said in the, the best ways or the behaviors might've been more harmful than people had realized. And I'm, I'm just making some assumptions here, but can you kind of dive into that a little bit and explain yeah. what, what you meant by those relationships? Yeah. So it's really interesting when, when we as a family having fun, we're hilarious. People like being around that. We make a lot of okay. like, naughty jokes or we say things that other people wouldn't dare <laughs> say but it's true for everyone you know for sure um when when you know uh, us in, in my generation have brought round new partners um you know for a sunday lunch that's a very traditional thing for us then it's it's not uncommon for the conversation to turn into very practiced and polished toilet humor <laughs> So okay. that happens sometimes. Okay. But ultimately it's just, you know, like humor is very much a skill and a passion for the people in my family. Um, the parts where it's fallen down a lot in the past is where uh, mental health, emotional well-being, healthy relationships, boundaries, all that sort of thing comes in. Um, growing up, there was a lot of control and fear. Um, threats of violence, um, alcohol misuse. Um, through my teens, my brother is, he was born a little while before my 12th birthday. I'm the eldest of three. Um, through my teens, there are a lot of times when my parents on a, on a school night would be out drinking and I would be there in charge of 
my sister who's only two and a bit years younger than me and it's not not a big gap and then my brother who was a toddler or a baby um wow so i'd be doing a lot of the kind of i'd I'd be the third parent and Mm -hmm. then often my parents might get home um be drunk or arguing um and then often i would be getting into trouble at school for not having done my homework when there was no time there was no time to do that and from the age of about 13 onwards that was kind of when all of that kind of trouble had started and i was often being the listening ear for my parents individually um i was also witness to some things that i didn't understand because i was too young and didn't know how to navigate that and i found that very upsetting Mm -hmm. and that was around the age that self-harm started to come into the picture suicidal ideation i start i'd started going to counseling and stuff because nobody else was you know things were really in the shitter and for many years but it didn't nobody it's really interesting to me now i think if that was going on now and i was an adult looking at that happening to a child i would know that this was this was a safeguarding issue this would be a cause for, for kind of getting the right people involved and supporting that that those children um but at the time i was just on my own with it for years and mm-hmm. i think i had such a low opinion of myself because on the one hand, I was doing all of this stuff. I was performing such a vital function for my family. And at the same time, the only feedback I ever got was criticism. So it was kind of this idea that actually you can give your life for your family and they can still think and tell you that you're a piece of shit and take out all their frustrations on you and be annoyed when you're falling short of perfection and stuff like that. Like it was, it was, a total mindfuck to be in that situation and then by the time I was 16 I ended up going out with this guy and it was just more more dysfunction more of the same again like boundaries didn't exist and you know as someone who was very much a bleeding heart and a doormat and was just trying to survive I was the perfect match for somebody who was completely self-orientated and wanted someone to control and abuse and treat badly so it was just a total fucking chit show. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, and I'm I'm, I'm so sorry, and I'm, I'm you know that, that I find myself repeating those words to a lot of our guests. That I'm so sorry, and of, of course it's genuine, and there's a lot of things that I feel when when I'm saying that. But every time I hear about people whose childhood was taken away from them, it's it really hurts. It does, and and I'm sorry that you experienced that. You said that you would like to think that you would recognize this, what was occurring if you were an adult who saw this going on. And Mm. I guess my question there is, what do you mean by that? Were there adults who witnessed what was happening in, or that you shared with what was happening in your life? Or are you saying that they maybe should have recognized some of your behaviors and started questioning what was creating those behaviors? I think a bit of both. I mean, there were times when notes were sent to school from my parents to the school to say things right now are really hard for us. Um, If you could like ease up on Harris a little bit with the homework, 
requests and just you know just try and be a bit understanding they were like oh, oh fair enough but there was no like is everything okay at home what does that look like for you you know do you do you mm. want to share that do you have support do you need counseling i mean uh here when you go to school so years 10 and 11 are the years academic years that you turn 15 and 16 okay and those are those are the years that you do uh, roughly around 10 subjects at a um GCSE level is what we call it so you have at the end of um year 11 is when you have all of your uh exams and, and you know obviously people are hoping that you do well and these form like a core part of your kind of qualifications in your education mm -hmm. and the year before that we had mock exams over the space of two weeks for all the subjects that we were taking and during that first week I was drunk for the entire thing I was 15 and amazingly I did really well <laughs> in my exams <laughs> And I've never been a big drinker, but I think at that point, I don't know, it just felt like it just felt like a bit of a brain holiday. I don't know how else to, to describe it. And I went to my head of year at, at that point and I said to her, so that first week of the mock exams, uh, I was drunk and I don't actually remember the exams. And she was like, oh, do you think that you might need to speak to somebody? And I was like, well, yeah. I've been saying this for a couple of years already. And she said, well, I won't get you in trouble if you agree to go to counselling. I was like, sure. So I did, but I look back at that now and I was like, that's insane. That's insane that you've got a kid being like, I got drunk for a whole week because I needed some escape from what I was feeling. And they were like, oh, well, I won't get you in trouble. Like, where's the, where's the investigation? Where are social services in this? Right. right. Um, I was just going to say that I would assume that in Europe that it would similar to the way that it should would normally be handled in the United States, which is get here, we'd say get DCFS involved and family services and everything to start yeah. an investigation. Now, I'm not going to speak to how well they do or don't do their jobs once they're called in because they're very, very underfunded from my understanding. Yeah. However, there would be, in theory, if all the right things are done, there would be a hell of a lot more done than, are you okay? Do you want counseling? Yeah. Now, exactly. what I will say is... I do like that they said we won't get you in trouble. I I do think that at least in my opinion that the punishment for doing something like that would be more harmful than anything cuz clearly there are much deeper issues than oh somebody had some drinks. Mm. So but I feel like the in this scenario I feel like the, oh, you won't get in trouble if you go get some help. Like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like what they should have said was, oh, my God, you're not in trouble. Let's go get you the help that you need. Okay. That, that's fair. And seems, I guess it seems point, like a weird carrot to put out when someone clearly needs assistance. 
Yeah, and, and the point that I was just making, though, is that it needed some touch, and it sounds like maybe the right touch wasn't used, but also when I look at, especially like when I look at the, the, the drug epidemic, I feel like a lot of times people don't get help because drugs are illegal. Yeah. So that means I'm a criminal, and that means I'll get in trouble. And then it's easier to try to deal with it on your own. So we're, we're going down a, a path that we, maybe we don't need to go down right now. But I just wanted to say that, it, you know, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm glad there wasn't a threat of punishment. Or I guess maybe there was a little bit if it was contingent on getting help. But counseling. So you've been, I will say that you've been given the offer of counseling. Um what does that look like? Does that go through the school? Does that go through some outside organization? How do you do counseling? I mean, at that point, I think when I was 13, I went to see the school counselor and these sessions were about 20 minutes. And this woman had lipstick on her teeth and looked <laughs> like she was, you know, barely present. And she would just ask the most mind numbingly stupid questions. And I just, I didn't get on with her. So I said, I said to my teacher who was sort of offering this support, um, she said, go, you know, there, there was a, a charity that was literally down the road from our school. Um, she says, you can go there like they're approved. Um, so I went, I went to see this woman. She, I think she was training. So this was one of her sort of, you know, you have to get so many hours in when you're, when you're a, a new counsellor. Mm-hmm. And it was very dry. There wasn't a lot going on there. But the moment that I happened to mention my childhood sexual assault, she got very excited. Um, This was going to be a really interesting day of work for her. And I felt quite uh, objectified and that she was getting a kick out of having an interesting day at work when I was sharing something that I hadn't shared with many adults before. Wow. I understand. I I am very uncomfortable sometimes when I'm talking to people about this show because there are times when we're talking about some very serious things and I get excited about an, an episode we're releasing and it feels like what you're describing. Like I feel guilty that I am taking someone's traumas and, you know, getting excited about it. And it's not really what I'm doing. It's that I'm excited to share the story and, and have an episode with someone. It's a decent fucking human, but it's such an uncomfortable fucking thing. And for someone to clearly show you that, they're excited about maybe a new topic. And you you said that, did I hear you right? That this person was in training or at some part of their career where they needed the hours. Yeah. So for them, it's like, you know, another check on the resume is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, potentially, but it was just so, you know, I, I, from a professional perspective and obviously I help people with their trauma. I listen to, you know, I hear all of that, I get the excitement of working with somebody new, but I can't imagine that someone, a a young person, a a 15 year old would say, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 10. 
and growing this massive smile across my face and sitting up in my chair and being like, oh my God, this is amazing. Tell me. Like yeah. it was so fucked up. So let me, like, clear- okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was, was just going to say, say- <laughs> <laughs> I am terrible at this. I'm going to mute my mic for a second. Go ahead, Harris. <laughs> no, I guess it was just like, it was just such an odd odd thing to witness and it really put me off sharing anymore because I was like I'm sharing something that's really hard to share this is really difficult and all she's doing is just getting really excited I got that it was a professional thing it wasn't that I thought she was a freak I was just like this is completely inappropriate like you've got to have some level of poker face like this is not yes for sure I uh uh Years ago, I was a paramedic and paramedic school was the same. Everybody, you know, every 22 year old paramedic goes to paramedic school because, uh, you know, you, you watched on a, some TV show about it and it's very exciting looking. And turns out most paramedic stuff is all medical and it's pretty boring. But every once in a while, there's a trauma and somebody's really hurt. And the students that were with us, whenever there was a trauma, is the same, the same thing. We had to remind them, like, Remember, we're going in here. Put your game face on. This is not exciting for these people that we're working with. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just, I'm at a loss a little bit. I mean, it, the most basic thing is to treat other humans like they're humans. And it sounds like you were reduced down to this case that she was going to be talking about. Yeah. And, I I can see why. Well, I mean, I would immediately lose faith in that person. Um, so, how long did you speak with with them with with her? Um, I don't think I was there for that long. It won't have been more than a handful of months, I suppose. Okay. Um, and by the time I was about nineteen. I was then really suicidal. That was kind of the, I was getting towards the sort of three years being with this abusive partner. The stuff with my home life had really ramped up and I was just like, there's no way a human being can suffer this much with this many people for this many years. Like I couldn't find a way out. I kept asking people for help. I'd been to my GPs. I'd said, I even went to my GP and I said, listen, Death is looking quite inviting at the moment, but I I want to sort this out. I want to to face this and get some help. And he said, "Listen, you're you know you're you're near near the end of college. I did a year of college after I finished school at eighteen um, to prepare me to go and uh, study art uh, at degree level. And th- this was during during that year. Um, and the stuff with my then partner, he he was just getting like just crazier and crazier and i mean that literally um the gaslighting and the psychological torture was like next level mm-hmm. and i said to this gp i said listen i i'm i'm at my wits end like i'm surprised i'm here today and he said well you're going to university in 6 months like you know it's not going to be that long i said i don't i i'm surprised i'm here for one more day like i i need help now and he just wouldn't listen. And I think within about a month or so of that conversation, I was in A&E. I, I, I had been interrupted at, at an attempt. And 
I was in this grey room. I was really just dissociated by that point. And I just saw these people in white coats. I don't even think I looked at their faces. And they said, we're trying to decide whether to section you or not. I said, I have been asking for help at this point for six years. I was 19 at this point. I've been asking for help for six years. You know, this is this is way more. I don't know what is wrong with me, but this is way more than a, a little bit of anxiety and depression. Like mm -hmm. I'm going through it. I'm, this is a big problem. And I've been asking and asking and asking, you know, at what point is anyone going to listen? They said, if we promise to get you help, do you promise that you won't attempt this again? I said, yeah, absolutely. But I said, I'm just I'm losing faith at this point because nobody's taken me seriously. I've asked. I've been to my GP multiple times. And so I, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I've got a problem with that question, too. If we get you help, would you promise not to? What the fuck is that? Just get this human help, please. And I am. I am incredibly impressed right now. So many people never ask for help. Mm. And a lot of us know people who have died by suicide. Yeah. And so many people just want, wish that their friend or loved one had asked for help once. Mm. And here you are, 13 to 19, at an age where people... Don't ask for help. I guess in a lot of ages, people don't ask for help. And you're reaching out. And yeah. you're getting nothing in return. So did that change when you, when you made this promise? When you said, yes, if you help... I won't make any attempts on my life. I think, and, and I'm sorry, I am I'm not putting words in your mouth, right? That was the scenario yes. that they're making a promise. Okay. So is that when you got help? I went to go and see this psychiatrist and I think I got her for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think she was really struggling to grasp what it was that I was dealing with. And she was just a bit like, I, I don't really know what to do with you. And I think the one bit of advice she gave me that actually worked, she talked about how when I tried to um, hold people to their promises, hold them accountable for what they said they would do, that I was scared. And she said, how people react or feel when you hold them accountable for something they have already agreed to do is not your responsibility. That was the one thing that came back to me that I was like, well, you're the first person that said that. And that's really helpful. But other than that, it was close to useless. And then sure enough, I did go to, you know, I did go to uni. I moved away. Excuse me. And that did help. I broke up with my partner. I wasn't with my parents and, it was really weird because I had this enormous, like, physiological, like, nervous system reset. The first two weeks that I was away from home, I slept like I ha hadn't slept my whole life. Okay. It was absolutely incredible. And with that came this enormous guilt and enormous heartbreak that I had abandoned my siblings, who at that point felt like my own children. 
And I didn't know how my sister, you know, she was now the oldest child in the house. And since I had left, I was like, how is she going to cope with this? I haven't prepared her. I haven't even told, you know, so much. I was the buffer between my parents and my siblings so much of the time. And at that point, I was close to, you know, I'd been close to giving up for so long. I was like, I just need to get out of there. I hadn't even thought I have to prepare my sister for what she's going to be faced with. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I'd let them both down massively. My brother at that point was, he just turned six. Or seven. Maybe he was seven. But yeah, he was still little. And I felt horrific leaving both of them. Um, but then I had this kind of renaissance of my, the, these kind of, about the first year that I was away, maybe year and a half. I had this crazy time where I tried things. I did stupid things. I... I slept around a little bit. I went to be a stripper for five months, which was absolutely hilarious. One of the funniest jobs I've ever had. <laughs> and, you know, I, I dated and I, I tried cocaine a few times. It turns out I liked it a bit too much. So I knew that I couldn't, <laughs> I had to step away from that. Um, okay. But, you know, it was fine. I was responsible. You know, it got to the point where I was like, yeah, I'm getting a bit too into this, so I'm just going to step back. And I never never touched it again. It was fine. It wasn't a big deal. Um, but, yeah, I just had all these adventures and actually got to live for myself for a little bit and then got really in trouble. I got involved with this guy. So I think, like, looking back... Um, I was so divorced from my intuition, from what my body was telling me, all of that stuff because of what I ha I'd had to go through. Mm -hmm. And when I met this guy, he was he was all kinds of mixed up. He came from a very religious family. Uh, he was a mixed race, black adoptee uh, child to his parents. He had a huge amount of trauma that he medicated with heroin, but I didn't know that to begin with. Oh, wow. He seemed okay. really together. He was just like a mature student when I met him. Uh, he believed that whilst he was legally divorced from his wife, that they were still spiritually married and therefore he couldn't be with anyone else. Um, and he said that he was interested. And I said, I'm, you, you don't seem available. So it's, it's, it's going to be a no from me. And then he turned around and said, no, I want to go out with you. Just don't be a psycho. <laughs> you know okay. that that whole thing it didn't last a very long time but it was a complete disaster i got pregnant at one point um and that terrified the life out of me and then i found out that he had this heroin problem and i was still very much in the grips of trauma like i had really no no money or nothing to offer a child and then i found out about his drug problem and he already had two kids from his marriage that he didn't see because he wouldn't submit himself for, for drug testing. And I was just like, this whole thing is an absolute disaster. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I did the only thing I thought was the right thing to do and end, ended the pregnancy. That, ha that whole thing haunted me for about the next five years. Okay. Uh, not that I regretted it, but 
I then, after that, I everything fell apart. I lost my job and my house and, and he and I split up and all this other stuff. And I came back home. I started to pull myself together, mm-hmm. um, dated a few more shit people, but it was much less dramatic than heroin addiction and stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, I... I'd, I'd imagine so. Usually, yeah. usually, usually by the time we get to heroin, that's we're we're on the other the other side. The, the yeah. really kind of this is going downhill. <laughs> yeah, it was it was yeah, it was a pretty pretty uh, sobering, uh, interestingly uh, situation to be in. So, I went home. I started to get my shit together. Uh, I went self employed because all of the jobs I was trying to have it was just a nightmare. They did. I didn't fit in. They were stressed. I was stressed. I went self-employed. And then at 25, I got uh, a little bit of cancer. That was the moment that everything changed. Like, <laughs> okay. at this point, you're like, how are you still alive? And I don't know. But... <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm sorry. I laughed because you said a little bit of cancer. Uh, <laughs> that's better than a lot of bit of cancer. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So was was it caught early then? Is that what you mean by a little bit of cancer? Is that yeah, just a so... way of saying it? <laughs> no, no. It, it was like, I, I went at 25 here. You get called in for your first pap smear, smear test, as we call it. Okay. And they're like, yeah, we found early cancer. And I was like, fucking brilliant. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just add it to the list. Yeah. And so they did a biopsy. They were like, yes, we've confirmed it with the biopsy. Then I went in and they cut it out. Um, that, that whole thing was a whole lot, like it was dreadful, but it was simple. They cut it out. I went back six months later. They tested me. They were like, yeah, it's all gone. You're like, well done. Fuck I was yeah. like, <laughs> you finally caught a break yeah but that week it, this is this is what happened that week that i got the letter in my in the post in the mail that said we found early cancer i was like fuck my actual life i was so angry and scared and i was going out with this woman at this time and she by that point I, my heart was dead in like I, I was numb by that point she had I was there for her comfort and so she wasn't alone, but she didn't meet a single one of my needs. When I arrived at her house, her front door was on the latch and I let myself in. If I asked for a hug, it'd be, do I have to? You know, she she was very narcissistic, very immature. And that week I got this letter that said we found it. That week, all of my family were abroad or on holiday or something. I was on my own in the house. That week I ditched her. Within, I think, a month or two, I broke up off uh, one of my main friends, which that friendship had become very toxic. I stopped being a doormat. I woke up. And what's happened in in those last 10 years is that I've gone through trauma therapy twice. I had my PTSD treated in two hours. I had my complex PTSD treated in a matter of months. And they're gone, literally. There's, There's no... It's, it's gone like I don't I haven't had a relapse like for me to share all of this stuff is not hard for me I'm just sharing a fact of what happened sure sure and you're yeah <laughs> I was gonna say and you're doing an incredible job I I the the lesson I'm learning here aside from you being a decent fucking human and all of the things that we look for is Again, I learned this lesson over and over is I just need to shut the fuck up and listen. Because <laughs> I feel like I've talked over you a handful of times and you've got this. You are telling an incredible story. It hasn't gone through the doors that maybe I expected it to, but 
I'm I'm so grateful that you've been sharing this with us. And uh, again, I'm I'm just going to shut the hell up because I just interrupted once again to just tell you how, how much I'm enjoying this. Um, but but yeah. So, and I do want to specifically ask you say when when you got the cancer, that's when things change. Is this where it's going for the better? Is that what you're telling us? It, it sounds like yeah. it sounds like that's what you're telling us. It was such a pivotal moment because up until that point, I hadn't had the luxury or the thought or even the concept that I should care about what happened to me. Getting cancer was the part that said, hello, you, you could have lost yourself. You could have died from this. If you hadn't have, you know, accepted the invitation to go and get this routine test done, you could have been dead within a year. And suddenly I was like, oh, this shit matters. Like, I can't keep operating in this way of, like, not even thinking about myself once. And of expecting my body and my health and everything else to just be this permanent fixed thing. Because it isn't. And well, what I'm impressed right now is that from someone who at points wanted to take their life mm. that having an incident a scare like this with cancer that it sounds like it motivated you to say hey i need to change things yeah well taking your own life is your is your choice but getting cancer is not right That's and i point. think yeah. life was like you need to stop this. Like you need to start caring about what happens to you. You know, this is not a guarantee. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And you could get ill. Like you can't perform this function. You can't be the mortar between the bricks constantly. Mm -hmm. And it just woke me up. And since then, you know, there's so many different schools of thought that have informed my healing mm -hmm. as well as the trauma treatment that I've had. And I educate a lot on how how you actually fix trauma and not just talk about it, because for so many of us in our minds and how how our culture operates is that the golden standard of mental health care is therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think good therapy can change a life but i think trauma treatment saves a life in a way that it's not the same thing it's a different thing okay by the time i had my simple ptsd treated it was a total like fluke or divine intervention or whatever you want to call it that i was even in a situation where that could happen i had gone to a local uh you know, regular therapist and said, I'm having a relapse of anxiety. Can I come? And she's like, yeah. And during that time, during that assessment, she said, and um, you mentioned your PTSD. What, what do you want to do about that? And I said, I've been asking everyone for help with that for years. And they're just, they're fucking like chocolate teapots, completely useless. Like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she said, well, you can get rid of it. And I was like, really she's like yep yeah. and i said why hasn't anyone 
Elle said this. I've been asking for years. And she's like, I said, oh, well, can we do it now? She's like, no, we're going to do some, <laughs> going to do some foundational work, some prep work. And then, um, we'll get to it. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, 20, 20 years of PTSD for, from sexual trauma. Like I could read a, uh, article headline that even just mentioned the R word and I would be gone. Like I've locked myself in my car before in a supermarket, uh, car park. I've locked myself in bathrooms. I've been having panic attacks, um, just because I read the word, like it was bad. And in two sessions, in two hours, it was gone. I've not had a relapse. I've not had a nightmare. I've not had a flashback. Um, a friend that I grew up with knowing for years, he went to prison for similar offences with children online. And that was shit, but I was not triggered. I was like, I'm a moral adult and I have beliefs and feelings about that, but I'm not a victim. It wasn't, it was no longer happening to me anymore. It, it's right. like in the annals of history, but that, and that's it. And do you know what kind of, what the process was? What, what kind of therapy were you going through that worked so well for the trauma? Yeah. So that particular thing, it was called, it's a mixture of EFT, which is the tapping thing. You may, may have seen videos and stuff of that or tried it mixed with something called matrix re-imprinting. And both of these obviously are considered um, very alternative, but the basic thing that happened and what I've become um, now understand about it in my own training and in my own practice and helping my clients with this stuff was that when you when you have a trauma in your brain and and this has been confirmed by recent studies but we've known this for a while just because of how it presents but trauma in the brain doesn't get filed away like it does with other memories it stays in the in the part of the brain that understands something is present so even if something happened 50 years ago your brain is still convinced it has it's not been able to to file it away so it stays in this present point so when it gets triggered your body's like, oh my God, it's happening now, even though nothing is happening now. So what happened in my own uh, processing of that, but generally speaking, is that my brain, we were able to give myself the concluding experience to help that, to, to finish actually processing that so that my brain could then go, oh, now it's finished. Mm. So my practitioner took me back to the morning after the very first incident when I was 10 years old. It was the morning after I was looking out of the window um, at my perpetrator who was outside like on, on a skateboard or something. And uh, we were in this holiday home in, in Portugal. And I sort of arrived. I had this conversation in this really quiet moment with my younger self and there was a whole conversation about like, what was that? What's it even called? Like, I don't even have the words for that. And I, adult me was explaining, or oh, that, you know, this is sexual assault. Like it's not meant to happen, especially because you're a child, but it's not meant to ever happen. Um, you know, this is something that's meant to happen in a loving or, or consensual uh, relationship or something mm -hmm. when you're a grown up, like this is not for children and you didn't invite this. Like it's not your fault. You've done nothing to, what like for this to have happened adults are supposed to protect you they're not meant to do that and 
we had this amazing, very highly emotional, but not a triggering conversation. And it was just, it was all of the things I needed to hear at that age. It was all of the feelings that were never expressed because I didn't even have the words to say what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I I cried a lot. When I cry, there's a lot of snot and tissues involved. It's it's not very not very attractive. Okay. But the but the release of that was absolutely just I, I needed it so much. And after that, you know, I would see something like a headline would pop up on Facebook and I'd go, Oh. I, I would <laughs> I'd prepare myself to have a reaction that never came and I was like, Oh, I'm okay. Like I'm okay. Yeah. And Incredible. uh yeah. And so after that, uh, the year after that, I retrained. And then not long after I retra- retrained, I sold all of my shit. I went traveling, uh, had a breakdown at the end of the traveling, came home, went back to my practitioner. She had done a master's in, in traumatology. She did an assessment. She said, you've got complex PTSD. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, oh not a, another layer of it to go but <laughs> again that was like re- again really healing it was hard work like don't get me wrong this this stuff it's not it's not a day a day at the at the fairground this is like it's an undertaking but at the end of it i'm no longer engaging in these like unhealthy dynamics with people that i have a historical relationship with who are maybe not on the same page as me uh, you know, when I come across narcissists um, once in a while, I, I recognize it from afar. I don't get drawn in. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's just it's it's like you get your brain back, you get your body back, you stop reacting and you start making choices about what you're doing. And it's just a different life altogether. Yeah. And where I can relate to you is that a lot for a lot of my life, I wasn't putting myself first. And I was in an abusive marriage for 15 years because I was basically, I thought my role in my relationship was to provide or whatever and rarely thought about me. And when I started therapy and started learning to, to, to take care of myself was when I was willing to unravel all of the lies. Mm. and I'm so like there have been times of your as you're talking Harris where I've gotten goosebumps where I've been on the verge of of tears I'm I'm so proud of you because it sounds like you had a life where nobody validated you and your parents treated you as is something you know is i I don't know what word i want to use but you were taking care of the other kids you weren't in in the way i would interpret that for me is that i'm not important my role here is to take care of these others yeah and then you ask for help and nobody helps and then you're in relationships and even trying to get a hug you know you're completely invalidated i i just want to say it Harris, I've wanted to give you a hug for half of this. So if we're ever in the same room together, let, let, let's do that. <laughs> I'm up for that. I'm up for that. Thank you. But I'm incredibly impressed with 
your desire to get help with I'm sorry, I'm, I am tearing up a little bit. It sounds like you've always loved yourself, even if you didn't always know it. And you got to that point where you're prioritizing that self-care, and it's such an incredible fucking place to be. And I'm, I'm very, very moved by this conversation, and I wish we had hours to talk. We don't. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing. And as I'm over here, and I am, I've got a tear in my eye. Um, let's talk about a little bit of what you're doing now. You're you're out there helping others. So let, let's talk about that. So what are you doing today? So um, in 2023, I set up the Center for Childhood Trauma Healing, and I'm helping people one-to-one -to, -one to heal from their childhood trauma, or at least do the big chunky bits uh, in 90 days. Because, you know, as I've, I think I've begun to describe today, like it doesn't necessarily take that long. Obviously, with complex trauma, it can take a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just really magical. And it's so, it doesn't have to take years of your life. And this, I think this is what I want to, yeah, I think it's normal to have that trepidation of like, oh, I don't want to go there. One of the sort of main things that your brain does when you're traumatized is to help you to avoid the triggers because it's exhausting and it feels unsafe. Mm -hmm. And therefore it makes you avoid talking about it and dealing with it. But I think for a lot of us, there comes a point where you're like, I would literally give my fucking left leg to be done with this. Yeah. And you don't need to, you know, it, it really can be done that, that quickly. And uh, I'm also just about to launch a group program so you can have support across a whole year and also get some one-to-one -one sessions in there as well. And it's the most comprehensive thing I found because at the moment, Effective trauma treatment, and I'm not the only person, you know, a lot of people do offer effective trauma treatment and trauma processing, which is not the same as talking it through. Mm. Um, but most of those people are purists. They're trained in one particular thing. They don't have a holistic view of it. And I refuse to ever fall into that trap. Okay. So um, there's a lot of educating as uh, as well as schools of thought that can really help you so like you were saying scott that you related to the whole looking after people thing mm -hmm. that's also known as codependency yeah. people use that <laughs> word all the time uh to mean when you're a little bit kind of in each other's pockets like a bit too close but that's not what it means like from a clinical perspective it's when it's like that that way that i was living before the cancer where i lived a hundred percent for other people, yep. my sense of safety and everything came from everyone except me. And I lived for other people, you know, all of that stuff. So I'm really wanting to bring this very different idea of healing to people that firstly, it's their healing. It doesn't belong to a therapist, a psychiatrist or me or anybody. It's yours. Uh, also to have the education to know exactly what mechanisms you're dealing with in your own, own brain and to be so empowered and, and informed about this stuff that you know what you're doing. You know, you know, as a survivor, where you're going, what you need, what type of things are on offer and what your options are. And also just to simply know that 
you can come out the other side of this to the point where you are this Zen sloth who <laughs> isn't really threatened by anyone and kind of doesn't give a shit about the unimportant <laughs> things and also well, is able to have these really fulfilling relationships with people who get it, who've been through the same thing, who are accountable, who are emotionally healthy. Cause that's, I think that's a bet. That's my favorite part of my life. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm in a little bit of a loss for words with a lot of this episode, Harris, and it is genuinely because I'm I'm so impressed. Um, Thank you. It sounds like you are in one hell of a spot, and this is some of the reason I get emotional is because I feel like I got to a spot where I was able to say, "Holy shit." Things are fucking good. Yeah. And understand that it's okay to love myself and put myself first and take care of myself. And then you can start helping others. Mm. And as much as you're right, I have been corrected on it before. Libby, uh, I think it was, was it Libby who made sure to tell me on an episode that, okay, you, you talk about that. That is codependency. And you know, whatever it is, and I'm not questioning that it's codependency, it clearly is. Um, it was just a matter of, of me not treating myself as important as other people. So whatever reason I did that, um, when I understood that take care of yourself, the, you know, I've said it on here before and I'm rambling now, but I'm going to continue rambling to say, you know, the old thing they say about putting your mask on first in an airplane absolutely true you've got to take care of yourself and then you can do some great fucking things and it sounds like you're doing great fucking things so if anyone wants any of these great fucking things harris how do they reach out to you how do they find you go to my website which is mxharrishill.com mx harris with the double r hill with double l.com and it's got a link to all my freebies uh social media platforms healing group i've got a webinar there talking about uh, how complex trauma is actually treated, what that's like, the different steps involved, and also a reading list if you want to tackle things like codependency, you want to have healthier relationships and be a healthier component in those relationships. As I've got a recommended curriculum of four audiobooks that were most pivotal to my healing and to, for my cl clients as well. All right, that's phenomenal. I, I will make sure that that makes it onto our site, on our show notes so that anyone who needs to find you can easily do it. Um, Dan, this was kind of great, wasn't it? This is a great episode. Harris, you're fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, Thank you for it, being here. It's been awesome, and I've learned a ton, and I've kept my mouth shut because you're so good at this. Thank yeah, I you. Need to, I need that to really learn to do that. <laughs> I need to learn to do that. But Harris, it, it's been great. It's been – we're so grateful you've – clearly passed the decent fucking human test i think i said that already but you are here you are a decent fucking human we're humbled we are grateful um and inspired by you so thank you so much for coming on thank you it's been such a lovely space to share with you both and you're both like just so lovely to you know it, it makes it very easy to talk about this stuff you two are really lovely <laughs> well thank you so much i do appreciate that and terrible listeners Remember to like our sites, our, our social medias, at Positively Terrible. 
You can email us if you want have a story that you want to tell at podcast at positivelyterrible.com. And the big news is we've really blown out the merch site. So we've got a big old merch site on Etsy. We would love for you to wear a shirt that says decent fucking human or be kind or whatever mental health merch that you want. So make sure to go find it, buy it. I know you don't want to hear this, but I am going to push it. Um, Dan, you look like you're making faces at me. Am I talking too much again? Yep. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> All right. So Harris, this has been great. Dan, this has been great. And as always, today's episode has been absolutely, positively terrible. I met you back at Tonica's fest. I confess I was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the best. I was right. And that night we got into a rotted fight that I won. I shot you in the face. It was fate. I offered you a spring. You declined. I said, keep it your might. Decide to change your mind. You did. Positively Terrible is a part of the Terrible Podcast Network.